0: We're in a series on Proverbs. This is a book in the Old Testament. It's a a great book of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. When we talk about the wisdom literature, typically we mean Job and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It would actually involve some of the Psalms in the Old Testament. But we're we're looking at these this summer, and the way we're trying to look at these is thematically. The Proverbs… Sometimes there'll be a, a theme for several verses, but then after that, there's just one here and one there, and we kind of glean and pile them together and see the thread of, of a, a theme or a subject. So we're going to look at uh, primarily Proverbs chapter 4, second part of Proverbs chapter 4 this morning. Um, for some reason, the Dead Poets Society is coming back up. I haven't watched it recently, but this is the second time it's bubbled, <laughs> bubbled up. Uh, if you've seen that movie, Rob, you know, one of Robin Williams' great movies, there's this, this scene of a... It's the first day of class where these young men have have the character, you know, the teacher played by Robin Williams. First day of class, and he has one of the students open up to the beginning of the textbook and read this section called Understanding Poetry by J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. And so this student begins to read and. What J. Evans Pritchard says is that if you want to really understand poetry, what you would do is you would first look at its perfections, you know, its meter and its vocabulary and that kind of thing. And then you would look at its importance over literary history. And so as, as this young man is reading this passage from the textbook, and all the boys are, are reading from the textbook, the t- Robin Williams, the teacher, he goes up to the chalkboard, and he actually draws an X-Y axis on the chalkboard, and he's following the directions of J. Evans Pritchard, and, and this poem would plot here on the graph, but, you know, this poem is greater. It would plot here on the graph, and we would shade in a larger surface area. And then Robin Williams just says, that is absolutely horrible. Tear that page out of your textbook. And, and, that's, how, and that's how he begins the class, to say that you... you you don't understand what a poem is, you know, what poetry is by just looking at the components, of this vocabulary or this meter or this role in literary history. It, it's, there's something much... There's a more fundamental poem there. And you could say that about a human being. And we could say that about you. You could say it about me, that, that you, you are... In some ways, the product of family and ancestry and upbringing. And uh, you're greatly affected and, in some ways, a product of your of your life experiences. And we could add things like your education and your personality. You know, children from the same parents show up with these different personalities. There's Your, your personality, uh, your vocation, as you take on work, what you do. Like, all that is part of who you are, but up underneath that there is a much more fundamental you. And the biblical term for that just fundamental, inner, ultimate, baseline you is your heart. And there's a really top-shelf Old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke, and, and Waltke says that the word heart is the most important anthropological term in the Old Testament. anthropology, the study of man, that when you come to that Hebrew word for heart, that is the most important term involving humanity in the Old Testament. Uh, We're going to first read this passage from Proverbs 4, and it speaks about the heart, but it speaks about it in a particular way, and I really want you to, to watch for this as we read it that it uses a metaphor that's not unique to the Hebrew scriptures, but is a big deal in the Bible. It's a way of capturing the experience of a human being, this person with a heart, living the whole of his or her life. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness, they do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we need wisdom. In our saner moments, we crave wisdom. But we cannot make ourselves wise. And so, we come to you with empty hands. And we come to you like sheep to a shepherd. Sheep are not smart. And sheep don't know what to do. And so we, like sheep, come to you and say, guide us, lead us in the way to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me, uh, let me describe a scenario that... I saw when I was a college student, and then I had a front row seat too when I was a campus minister for 10 years. And here's the scenario. You've got a guy and a girl, and they become friends. And maybe they have the same friend group, so maybe they're in the same group of four, they're in the same group of 10 doing something, but they just see a lot of each other. And they're friends. And sometimes they'll just do things, the two of them, because they really enjoy each other and they feel safe with each other. And, you know, after a while, people begin to ask, are you a couple? And uh, one or both of them will say, no, we're not a couple. We, you know, just a friend. We've never, we never held hands, much less anything else. We're, we're not a couple. We're just friends. But, you know, after about the tenth time they've been asked, are you a couple, Sometimes these, these friends will have a, a DTR, you know, a define the relationship. So it's not a define the relationship, will you date or, will, you know, will we be exclusive with each other? But it's just, you know, it'll be sort of a, okay, look, just so we're clear, because you may get the questions, I get the questions. We are not romantic. We're not dating, right? And the other one ensures, right, totally. We're not boyfriend, girl, no, no. Friends, So, for you, enjoy you, but okay, just want to be clear. We're clear. We're clear. And then one of them falls in love with someone. And the other one is crushed. And some of you may have experienced it. And the weird thing is you've got... And, and I was actually nervous about using this example because we're talking about the hard and the big obstacle that I have to overcome with all of us is your heart not being completely identified with, like, feelings and romance. And I'm starting off with an example about feelings and romance. Great job, Brian. But, but the, the reason I think it's appropriate is that what the heart did there is you've got both people saying, All right, let me think about this. And what am I feeling? And I've identified my feeling, and I'm being honest about my feeling, and I'm talking to you, and I'm being intentional, and we're clarifying And the heart played a trick. And Scripture acknowledges that. It talks about the heart is deceitful above all things. That's why counselors tend to have full calendars. Is you would think that the easiest person to have knowledge about, the easiest person to have objectivity about would be yourself. The hardest person to be objective about is yourself and your own heart. So I want to I look at this. This is not exhaustive about the heart, but I, it, it's, it's such a big deal in Proverbs, I think we'd be remiss if we don't at least address it. So l- let's look at three things. First off, the profile of the heart. What is the heart? If it's not just feelings, what is it? The profile of the heart, the journey of the heart. And I'm sure that you picked up on the metaphor that's in Proverbs 4, journey, walk, path. The journey of the heart, and then the third thing, though, is the arrival of the heart. So, the profile, the journey, and the arrival. When people throughout history have tried to identify what are the three biggies of what we might call your inner life, in other words, just foregoing what you are as a physical, bodily person your inner life, what are, what are sort of the three biggies? And typically, the three biggies that are identified are your mind, your thinking, your intellect, your feelings, or the old term would be your affections. When, uh, when our pastor Jake Patton was here, he was really good about talking about and praying about the affections, your feelings, and they matter. And then your will or your volition Now, again, of those three, which one almost completely is identified with the heart? It's the feelings. In the Scriptures and in the Old Testament and in the wisdom literature, your heart does all three. It thinks and it feels and it wills and acts. And this is so interesting in a number of ways. Like, how many times have you heard someone say some version of, hey, look, I think we need to stop approaching this, like, with our heads and start using our hearts. And there's about, like, 14 things wrong with that. Because (laughs) the whole of you thinks not just… There's a heart behind your thinking, not just an organ called the brain. And by the way, the Israelites didn't think about this as your thinker. They probably thought of it mostly as the target when you're in battle. Yeah, take that out. And they wouldn't have pointed to the center as your heart because heart didn't mean the organ that pumps blood. It's the whole of your being. Now, look, just look at this from the Scriptures, and, and don't take my word for it. Uh, your heart is your mind. Look at the passage under Proverbs 4. Now, this is not Proverbs. This is 1 Kings. But it relates to King Solomon who compiled these Proverbs. And it's when he's a new king, he's a young man, he's following David, his dad, massive shoes to fill. God says, ask me for anything. And so here's what Solomon asks. 1 Kings 3.9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. And a few verses later, God says, I will, I'll give you that mind. But what we're translating there is mind is the Hebrew word for heart. It's the same Hebrew word that Solomon says, I, I, I need a, an understanding heart, a discerning and listening heart. And God says, I'll give you that kind of heart for thinking. And it's your feelings. Look at the next proverb, 1515. 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. The person who has cheerful feelings in his or her heart, they just... Life is a feast, and you know people like that. And it's what you do. 1120, those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord. Now, just stop and think about that. It doesn't say you're an abomination just because of actions. There's a deeper, more fundamental problem, that the heart is crooked. And we could go on and on about this. But if that's true, and I believe that is biblical and true... Think about some of the implications. For instance, most of us are doing something that we don't even realize that we're doing every day. And it's some version of this is that when I'm assessing how I'm doing, I tend to think that I'm doing how I'm doing because of inputs. And the inputs could be uh, fatigue, lack of rest, Money, lack of financial well-being, stress due to work or life circumstances, and other challenges. So when, when the inputs are going well, I'm doing well. When the inputs are not going well, I'm not doing well. And Scripture says, no. No. Disabuse yourself of that. We are doing how we're doing because of our hearts. Some people have great health and great finances and great connections and they look amazing and they're doing terrible. And some people live in poverty and they've had great setbacks and their cup overflows. That's because the inputs don't determine it. The heart does. All right, that's the profile. So what about the journey? Let me just read a couple of passages again just to underscore this. Look up at uh, verses 11 and 12 back in Proverbs 4. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. Look down at verse 26. Verse 26. Uh, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Now, I, I, I don't want to pile on stats here, but the term way is used over 50 times in Proverbs. The term path or path is used over 20 times. Here's the other terms in the passage. Stumble, walk, step run, go on a path, swerve. All right, it's, the, it's this old language that's not limited to the Hebrew Bible, that life is a journey. This actually stretches me because when I hear somebody talk about their life and they say, you know, on my journey, I really, I just, ooh. But it's, I need, I need to yield because the Bible is replete with that language as is really world culture. And here's a couple of reasons why it's such a great metaphor. There's lots of reasons, but here's a couple. One is, this is written before cars and jets and all the other fast ways to get somewhere. Like yesterday, I was in Montana. People couldn't travel like that in this day. A journey, unless you were wealthy and had, you know, a, a chariot or camels or something, it was Walking. And this is what it envisions. Path, step, walk. What that means is that most of life is mundane and repetitive. Step, step, step. Left, right, left, right. Walk, walk, walk. It's not huge, great breakthroughs. I read a novel this summer. And the, without getting in all the, all the plot, there, there's, there's this character who's this good-looking guy, super good-looking, and he just makes terrible choices, and he's been a womanizer, but he has a girlfriend. And finally, one day, his girlfriend breaks up with him, and she tells him, you're an epiphany addict. It's like just you, 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 you go astray, and then you come back to me like, you know what? I get it now. I've, I've, kinda, I've arrived, and everything's different now. And she knows life is not like that. Step, 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 walk, walk, walk. The other thing is this, and I'm going to borrow from uh, somebody down the road in Atlanta, Andy Stanley, who, it, it, he talks about what he calls the, the principle of the path. And this is, it, like, it sounds obvious, but it's extremely helpful. Direction, not intention, determines destination. Direction, not intention, determines Destination if your just absolutely kindest, most generous friend gets you and some people together and says, we are going to New York City on my dime two weekends from now and we're going to drive up there, we're going to take our time. And you get in the car and you go south on 85. It does not matter how friendly and how generous the intentions are, you will not get there. And Scripture says that's, that's how life is. Like, if you say, man, I, I really want to be a more stable person. Unless you walk towards stability, the intention does not matter. Or I, wa- I want to be close to God. My intention is, is you know, as I get older, to be closer to God. If you do not step that way, the intention does not matter. And that's why you've got the language of really like this this instructor grabbing you by the lapels. Look in verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. I mean, he sounds, you know, going back to I-85, if we're going to talk about ways and danger and swerving. You know, it's like the language of the parent in the passenger seat, and the teenager is driving on I-85 up by Spartanburg, which is horrible right now. And you've got like cement barricades going into the lane. So now it's even more narrow next to the 18-wheeler. And, you, you know, mom sees, this is all theoretical, that mom sees the, the, the uh, teenager like actually look at a text, and she's saying, be like, you've got to pay attention. You cannot swerve. The stakes here are so much higher. Why are the stakes higher? Verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. We're only talking about whether you shipwreck your whole life. Uh, How do I do that? What does that look like to be so attentive and so vigilant? Let, Let me give one example. Some of the application starts in verse 24. But look at this, verse 24. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Now, we all know that we all bend the truth. We'll bend the truth to put ourselves in a better light. We'll bend the truth to um, remove pain or or consequences. I mean, we all do that. And of course, the instructor is saying, no, you, "You've got to look at that very carefully because that is swerving." But as I thought about this, who, who is the person? If we're going to talk about the heart, who is the person that you're most inclined to bend the truth with? It's ourselves, and it just—it sounds so real and believable. In the moment that we'll believe ourselves, I don't drink that much. I know a lot of people that drink a lot more than this. Uh, I have friends. I have people I can call. And you don't have friends. No one knows you. You essentially have a secret life. Um. I love God. And what that means is I'm supposed to love God. And so I'm going to get myself to believe that I love God and I I don't love Him. I don't like Him. I prove it by going long stretches without thinking about Him. And the instructor is saying, you must put this under the light. Begin with where are you bending the truth because that is going off the path. Uh This is important. It's more important than like what's on our resume. You can have an awesome resume and a wretched heart. So, what about the arrival? What's the you I mean, if you're on a journey, you're trying to get somewhere. So what is the intended arrival of the heart. And from the perspective of the wisdom literature and from the perspective of the whole Bible, the, really, we could put it this way, the arrival of the heart would be to go and end up where we started. And what I mean by that is, not just in our lives, but I mean in the Bible, where did human beings start? And where we started, I love talking about this. In Genesis chapter 2, when it records God creating Adam, the first man, and, and it's written as if he's a real man, not a mythic figure, that when he makes him... He makes him out of the ground, the the dirt. When God breathes life into him, what's the first thing the first human being with a human heart saw? God and his face. And we've never been the same because our natural condition is we lost that connected, loving face. And it's interesting that there's <clears throat> there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus, it's, it's the night before he's going to be crucified. He says to these disciples, and he's been saying things like this, but he's finally just really laying it on the table. He says, "I'm going to the Father." And one of the disciples actually refers to. He says it in wisdom literature sort of way. He says. Show us the weight of the Father. And you know what Jesus said? I am the way. Not I will teach you the way. Not just I will model the way. I actually am the way. Uh, Jesus is not merely an instructor. Jesus is not merely an imparter of wisdom. Jesus Christ, the New Testament says, is wisdom from God. He is our wisdom. What does that mean? That in this walk of my life with boyfriends or girlfriends or loneliness or unemployment or underemployment or terrible boss or family dysfunction, like what does it mean for Jesus, not just to show me the way, but to be my way. If that's your question, please keep coming, because I can't answer that in one, in one minute. But I would just say this. For Jesus to be your way, it is for you to trust Him. That only He can be and do for you what God requires you to be and do. You cannot live up to what God requires you to be and do. But Christ can be and do that for you and transform you. And the mystery of Scripture is that God is both destination and with us. Isn't that amazing? God is both destination and with us. And I would ask you this morning is Jesus actually your way? I'm not asking, like, do you like him? I'm not asking, do you like church? I'm not asking, do you concede factually that there was a Jesus of Nazareth, and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead? I'd love for you to concede all that. But what I'm asking is, is the Son of God your way? Because here's the thing. If he is, you have found the wise path. And even in all the ways that you're going to stumble, his path did not stumble. You are not saved by your walking. You are saved by his walking. And he's with you in your walking. Um, Last thought. Possibly the first autobiography and maybe one of the, that's for sure, one of the greatest autobiographies ever written was the confessions of Augustine or Augustine. And first page, you know what he says? And he didn't just grow up all religious. He was a womanizer, had a concubine, whole nine yards. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, now that we've heard your word, please help us. Help us to walk in the way of wisdom, not to swerve, not to engage in wickedness, not to tell lies to others or ourselves. But Lord, how we need Your Son to be the way, to be the truth and the life for us. Lord Jesus, thank You for the good news that we're not saved by our walking. We're saved by Your walking. We pray that You would drive that deep down in our hearts. We pray in Your name. Amen.